outside of all this stuff, I would say, and this is really anyone doing something creative, when, you for, when you're young and when you first open a restaurant, the, what you want to do is prove something to everybody. And if you're an artist, if you're a singer, if you're making an album, if you're a chef or whatever it is, um, that's what you want to do. And so you end up doing too much. You end up trying to do too much. And as you get older, you realize the wisdom is trying to really bite into something that's so simple. And, and that's really the trick to doing a restaurant or doing something creative is really, really getting outside of the ego part of it um, and just being able to offer a really, really incredible experience to customers. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On this episode, recorded in January of 2019, we spoke with Will and Julie Horowitz, brother and sister co-owners of Duck's Eatery. I walked into Duck's Eatery in 2011 when Will and Julie, brother and sister, were just starting their business, their restaurant, and it's tiny, tiny, but what they produce in that small space is so remarkable. And all these years later, they are packed. They've opened Ida and Harry's around the corner. And then in sitting and chatting with them, I found out that their dad lived on the same street as my parents. And we had so many interesting connections. Um, and I have just cheered them on all these years. And I was really thrilled when they said they would love to be interviewed for our podcast. Okay, so could you each introduce yourselves and then tell me the name of your business? My name is Julie Horowitz, and with my brother, we own Duck's Eatery on 12th Street and 1st Avenue, as well as Harry and Ida's down the block on Avenue A and 12th Street. Do I go from there? Well, what's your name? My name is Will Horowitz. When did y'all open your your business? This one, Ducks. So this location we opened uh, back in 2012. Um, before this, we were Ducks at Spin. Uh, we were the restaurant inside of Spin New York, the table tennis club on uh, 23rd Street. And um, if I understand correctly, Will was a table tennis champ, right? Is that why you had the connection with table tennis? Yeah, I was a table tennis champ, but it should be clarified. I was for a very, very young age category, so it was me against, like, three other people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So then from being at Spin, how did you decide to move here? Um, I think Spin was a really wonderful stepping stone for us into this industry. Neither of us had owned our own business before. Um, we had never worked at the helm of a food business. Uh, so I think it was a great introduction for us. That being said, it wasn't necessarily um, our concept coming through. And I think we did some really exciting, creative things there. But at a certain point, we decided it was time to have our own space. And um, Are you talking about Spin? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were, we had very little food experience. I had worked, growing, you know, worked my way up as a chef, but not running a restaurant. And we got matched up with four other people that had no restaurant experience <laughs> to run a $5 million nightclub in New York City. So you can imagine how that went. How did, how did that happen in the beginning? <laughs> well, so, so I had a... I had a bunch of close friends through a ping pong world and just through the art world. Um, that were throwing um, a uh, party down in Tribeca at the time called uh, Naked Ping Pong. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that, that became pretty popular. Um, I was uh, kind of living around Southeast Asia in Nepal around the time, and uh, one of them was uh, dating Susan Sarandon, and they all thought it would be a good idea to open up a ping pong club, and I was uh, looking at the idea to come back in New York and open up a restaurant, and I kind of stole Julie from wherever she was living near Madagascar, and we kind of just did it. So All right. I kind of fell right into it. <laughs> Typical New York restaurant story, really. <laughs> so how did you get into food in the first place, Will? I've been eating my whole life. No way. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> uh, our grandparents were really big into food, so 
Uh, our grandmother on one side was a, a French-trained chef, and grandfather was a fisherman in the Orient Point, Long Island. And um, my grandparents on the other side, on my father's side, were like typical Jewish New York from the Bronx and had a delicatessen. So we've kind of been around it uh, 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 quite a bit. And then to throw another wrench into the loop, our father was a cardiologist, so we grew up eating a lot of tofu on top of that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <It's> all <laughs> Well-rounded. Yeah. Right. So, um, so what did you do? What did you do in between growing up around all of this and then opening your own restaurant? I already hear inklings of traveling and studying, but can you tell me about that? Yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I was sort of on a typical straight path, um, high school, and then went to a liberal arts college up in Poughkeepsie. I was a French and psychology major, which has proved to not help me at all in this industry. <laughs> first time a Vassar student hasn't dropped the name Vassar. <laughs> I was a Vassar student. Um, and, uh, and I graduated in 08, which turned out to be uh, arguably one of the worst years to graduate in the last decade. Um, no jobs. Most of my friends went into teaching or volunteering or traveling. And I, um, I ended up taking a teaching assistantship on an island called Reunion. Um, which is a French overseas department off the coast of Madagascar. So I was there for about a year, and I was getting ready to renew my contract to stay another year because I had no further clarity on what I wanted to do. And um, I was pretty much a beach bum and hiking on the weekends, and um, my workload was pretty minimal. And I was Skyping home with Will one day, and he said, uh, listen, I know it's pretty sweet out there, but you want to open a restaurant instead? <laughs> And, uh, and that's pretty much what we did. I flew home and literally that afternoon walked into the construction site at Spin and had no idea what I had signed up for. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a, a tough transition back into that life, um, especially into like the nightclub scene of New York, which that's is something that's- That's a culture that's, shock. Yeah, it's, it's not natural to me anyway. Um, but it, yeah, it's the beginning of the adventure. Mm-hmm. And Will, what were you doing in the meantime? And you're four years older, right? So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I was doing all sorts of things. Um, well, you know, I, uh, I guess when I finished high school, I moved out to Colorado, and uh, I just didn't come home for a long time. I, I went to a, a small, weird little Buddhist college out there in Boulder called uh, the uh, Jack Kerouac Institute of Disembodied Poetics started by Ginsburg. And uh, so I originally went to school for writing, and this is at Naropa Institute. Um, I think now they call it a national university. Um, and so that was really where I geared myself towards was writing. And I kind of found that all those writers I was looking towards were uh, kind of just dying of you know alcoholism and drugs on their way towards Buddhism. So I transferred into that and uh, end up going into Buddhism and permaculture. And uh, permaculture for me was like this, you know, the study of kind of, it was based on, you know, wanting to homestead and wanting to learn how to live off the grid. And so I kind of focused my time on doing that in the mountains out there. And uh, yeah, one thing kind of led into the other, like cooking for me was just like a, another part of uh, learning renewable construction or farming or whatever it was, just figuring out how to be more self-reliant. And, um, and, and at the time, it was, uh, once I left school, it was just also a good job mm-hmm. cooking because, well, also I could ski and snowboard during the day. So it was kind of a good deal. Um, and more and more, because we had those roots in it, you kind of fell in love with it. And uh, more and more, it kind of transferred over to it. But uh, once I left Colorado, like I said, I was traveling a ton and roaming around and taking weird barbecue adventures all over the country and just studying kind of old techniques wherever wherever I kind of lay. Can you tell me about a barbecue adventure? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I don't really talk about it much, but there was definitely a point that I dropped out of college, sold all my possessions, proposed to my girlfriend at the time, bought a conversion van, and traveled around the country in our van with our, our golden retriever, just looking at barbecue haunts 
And, and so I did that for a good time. That van was really disgusting. Dodgy <laughs> van. This is just, oh, God, I remember this thing just changing lanes on its own in the middle of rainstorms down 95. Um, Can you duct tape a TV to the center oh console? Oh, God. I thought that was real slick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, I nailed the George Foreman grill to the wall. But um, I thought like, that was, that was real slick. I, I, I had one of those self-starter alarm systems that I decided to learn how to install myself. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing I'm so great at installing alarm systems on cars uh, because the thing would just start the car in the middle of the night. No. <laughs> Random. So we'd be, we'd be out, you know, drinking somewhere, out, you know, at a concert somewhere. I'd come back and, of course, I'd be out of gas because my car had turned itself on all night. And, uh, yeah, it was a good few months of, of adventures. Around what year was um, that? Oh, it's all a blur. Uh, maybe '05 or so, okay. and then uh, from from there, uh, things went a bit sour in Colorado for me, and uh, I, I left and I uh, went out to Nepal, uh, predominantly to to I don't know what <clears throat> write a book, but then I got there and I started doing that, and I realized I didn't know how to write a book, and. Uh, and I moved on to other things. I ended up playing ping pong for, with the national team in Nepal for a bit and uh, hiking around and crossing over into Tibet. But it was during the uh, uh, Beijing Olympic protests. So that got a little kooky over there. And then from there, it went into another military coup in Nepal. So that got a little crazy over there. And then I, uh, I went out to Bangkok and, and found myself kind of doing some freelance work over there and, and then later on Burma. But... <laughs> But, uh, yeah. And uh, how did you guys relate to each other's experiences, considering that it sounds like maybe they were pretty different? I think um, there was definitely crossover in the sense that we both took these sort of extreme adventures, and, um, and most of the people we grew up with were on very different paths. Um, so I think we could kind of relate to each other in that regard. And we both grew up with a, a great love and appreciation of nature and our dad used to take us fishing and hiking and um digging and I think uh I think we both love that part of traveling really getting our hands dirty um I don't think either of us really related very well to where we grew up either at least I didn't you know where we grew up mainly in white plains and either you became a banker or you end up working highways or cutting grass or working for the city or going to jail so maybe yours was Everybody, a bit more diverse, but, I don't know. But, but you know, all my friends either end up in finance or they end up as fighter fighters or they end up dead. So it was uh, there wasn't a lot in between for anything mm -hmm. else, kind of, and, and so that was that was a lot of escapism. Do you want to add to that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, maybe my friends took a bit of a different path, <laughs> um, but but I think he's right in the sense that um, we both wanted more and something a little more offbeat. Um, and in that sense, I think our travels were really perfect for us. And I think that's even something that we've been missing since we opened the restaurant that both of us uh, are craving. Um, but this has also been quite an adventure. So it's, it has filled that void, I guess. Um, but they were very different travels also. I mean, he used to call me when I was, uh, he had a little satellite phone when he was living in a tree house in Thailand. And he would call me and ask me to uh, Google some kind of, what was it, like a snake? He gave me like the specs of a snake. And he said, am I gonna die? Yeah, I, was, I was living in that area in, um, in southwestern Thailand near Burma that was um, uh, older resorts that had gone knocked down three years previous by the tsunami. And so- It's all very I life was, aquatic. And so I was living, um, and so I was living in a treehouse there, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of snakes. Yeah, a lot of snakes and there. I learned to identify well, a lot of them. Well, not that that's an issue, but you know, when you're not, when you're far, you know, snakes and poisonous things take have a different level of impact depending on how far you are from someone that can help. <laughs> and then, so that's a big part of the risk. Um, it's like rapid, you know, like anything. Um, so, yeah, there was... My travels were maybe as extreme and far away, but not quite as remote, I would say. Uh -huh. Were you two close growing up? I don't remember. 
Thanks. <laughs> Does that answer your question? I think so. <laughs> we were. Um, I think during high school, you know, he, uh, I was a student and very... Studious. Studious. Um, and he didn't care as much about school and kind of took his own path and, you know, it was like smoking weed behind the bushes in high school. Um, so I think... We may have drifted a little bit during those years. I mean, I was the firstborn. We're meant to crash into things. It's true. You got to clear the way. Yep. Yep. Gave me a lot of leeway. My parents didn't (laughs) think that I did anything wrong compared to him, so I really (laughs) (laughs) skated through (laughs) without an issue. Uh, But I think we were very close, and um, I was his guinea pig for food creations and go-karts, and um, he used to build all sorts of potentially dangerous... You had all sorts of, like, wires and things in your room that I feel like I would end up having to test out for you. Um, <laughs> I was constantly building things. He was build, always building taking things. taking things apart. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I, I was the guinea pig we do. for a lot of those. And, yeah, that, has, that dynamic is still there. So he makes something weird in the kitchen, and usually I'm one of the first to try it. Um, so I want to jump forward and ask, how you found this space and what some of the steps looked like to open mm. Ducks. Well, I mean, we, we had been looking for spaces for a while. We knew that we didn't want to be in the basement of Spin um, for more than a few years. And at that time, it wasn't really going anywhere over there. Now, that there's it's run a little differently, and they've done a really good job expanding. And, and also, more importantly, even if we had expanded with them, it just... It just wasn't us. You know, the ping pong and stuff was fun and the booze, but outside of that, like, you know, getting to be here identifies with us much more. We had been looking at a couple different spaces. We were originally looking at the old Mission Chinese space when they first opened up, which was originally a Michael Bao space, if anyone listening remembers who that guy is. Um, He's probably who's listening. A very, very famously a hysterical <laughs> top chef from Vietnam that screwed a lot of people. And so anyway, uh, it's a good thing we didn't take that space because uh, DOH ended up shutting it down when Mission Chinese, when Danny Bowen went in there. It was a really, and not their fault, it was a very difficult space to, to handle. It was kind of this strange basement outdoor space. Not and that this space doesn't have its challenges. Yeah, this space has its breakfast. challenges, but at least, you know, we're still here. My roommate at the time, who's um, my, my best friend in Colorado in high school, he actually managed all these buildings, so we had... We were able to kind of slip in real quickly when this place uh, went up, not saying it didn't cost a pretty penny to move in here. And especially back then, people were still paying, you know, a good fortune for liquor license, um, especially around this area and for small places. Um, so we we came in here and, and you know, it's it's a beautiful space. It's, a, you know, about 130-year-old space, a little more than actually. And it actually predates the grid system here in the East Village. So when this was built, you kind of have to imagine, um, you know, it was built along a diagonal dirt road still going to Stytown. That was a good place to hunt grouse and and stuff. Going to St. Mark's Church and, um, you know, all this beautiful concave brick ceilings and stuff were probably brick that some guy stole from down the street from a wall somewhere. And this was a stable house to the main building that was next door. Um, And this was all outside. And it's still a one-story building, which is really unique in this neighborhood. Yeah, which is pretty cool. So it's a pretty special place, but, you know, um, we've done a, we've accomplished a ton here, and we've had definitely a really good time, definitely some bad times too. But it's difficult. It's like maintaining a classic car. It's just always going to cost you more than it's worth, mm-hmm. but you kind of love it. So, Do you all own the building, or do you rent the space? We rent it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And do you mind if I ask where you got the money to first start renting the space? Yeah. I mean, we were both really young. I mean, I think when we first opened this place, I was 24, 25. Um, he was four years older. Um, yeah. And I think what happens when you're that young and that inexperienced is your investors are a lot of friends and family and a lot of really small investors. This is difficult. I mean, you. We. I mean, we did it the old-fashioned way. And we, we say, hey, look, this is what we're doing. And we kind of cooked our ass off for people <laughs> and did a lot of crazy dinners and things and got, um, you know, friends of friends and, and friends of family to kind of believe in us a bit mm-hmm. and help us out in whatever small ways they could cumulatively. Mm-hmm. And we just barely, barely, barely kind of got the lease. 
um, together. Opened with very, very little money, especially mm. after securing the liquor license, which was a, an expensive, yeah. arduous process. I mean, it's, it's, it's all pretty difficult. And, you know, like she said, I mean, you know, if you can manage to attain a lease in New York City as a small business owner, entrepreneur, which is really difficult enough as it is, um, you know, the city kind of screws you every which way. So, you know, getting a liquor license, doing construction, figuring all these different things out. Sidewalk there's, permit, you know, the there's fire no school for that permits, stuff. It's everything, so. yeah. I mean, there were definitely times in the first year that we just flat out ran out of money. Yeah. Um, and we haven't paid ourselves in a, about a decade, so. Yeah, you but know. we, you know, we pretty much kind of slept uh, around here. Eventually, I moved upstairs, actually, and uh, kind of just rebuilt most of the things ourselves and with some friends, so. Ooh. And um, your mom helped you design this space, right? She's an she did, yeah, designer. she's an interior designer. And I think um, even if she wasn't physically here, I think we can always sort of hear her voice. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm everything sure if she had her, her reins over the space, she would, it would be just a bit more cleaned up. Probably. <laughs> and chic. But, um, but, you know, since we were, you know, pretty young, we were always around the idea of really like, you know, sourcing material and furniture and different things. And, you know, and she's very, very savvy about about that stuff. And she's very, very good. So, um, especially, unfortunately, the the one we built downtown was gorgeous, gorgeous. And she had a big hand to play in that. Um, but and I think uh, she's also encouraged us even when we were kids. I mean, she's got a team that she works with as a professional designer, but she's always lugging things and gluing and painting. And I, I think she's passed a lot of that DIY mindset onto us. And, yeah. and this space is certainly DIY. <laughs> Where did you source a lot of the stuff from in this space? Um, I mean, the brick was here. Yeah. Um, it had some old school French paintings on it that we didn't take off entirely, but sort of dulled. Um, the whole back of the bar is um, reclaimed barn siding. Um, that Will, I think, got from a farm out yeah, I mean, of, uh, I don't remember where, but lugging yeah, it back I mean, in his car. And all, the, all the wood, um, basically all the wood uh, around the bar and back here was all uh, just skins of, um, the of faces old of barn upstate. Yeah. And so we pretty much just took all that and just, uh, yeah, nailed it together. Um, we personally demoed the bathrooms, which was fun. Um, even the, actually the mirror behind the bar uh, was a really fun project. We, it was, I had custom pieces of glass cut, and then I actually um, did like a faux finish on the back to create this like really mercury glass sort of vintage mirror look. Uh, so a lot of it's been that. It's, um, you know, common materials that we've messed yeah. with. I mean, and, even till today, most of the stuff like, it's pretty DIY. We pretty much fixed. I mean, my kitchen is essentially at this point like a, a giant like Rue Goldberg kind of experiment. But but yeah, I mean you know, it's I wouldn't exactly say it's like uh, winning any design awards anytime soon. It's mainly just what was here. I think and, it's beautiful. And though. we kind of deal with it. I mean, we love it in our own way. Like, you know, it's a lot of people us. joke us when they come in that like uh, you know our French door glass is cracked and. You know, it's. I just don't care about that stuff, to be honest. Like, I might care just, a little more, I but mean, it's, it's definitely not priority. Me. I mean, each one kind of tells a little story. Yeah, it's a so. scar. That was a bar I fight. mean, I that remember was, when yeah. those Canadian hockey players tried to fight those French guys back there at two in the morning. <laughs> That's what the crack is in the window. My chef got real <laughs> drunk um, over there, and you know, it's just nothing. <laughs> shit happens. Um, you know, this is a small restaurant in the East Village, and and. And we didn't come here with a, a deep wallet or with a big company. We just came here to stick it out ourselves, and we kind of do the best with what we got. You know, it, it's it's a space fool's that. game to constantly, you know, want to do it differently or do do more. I think it's uh, that's been the whole idea here. It's the idea for the book. It's the idea for everything, which is how do you make things absolutely awesome and incredible and delicious with what you got. Could you share a couple lessons that you learned from that whole process that could be helpful for <laughs> someone who is maybe looking to do something similar? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, the best thing to do for someone that's looking into opening a restaurant in New York City is just not to do it. That would be the best advice we can give you. Um, right now, it's a shit show here, opening up a restaurant. Like, everyone, everyone is against you in terms of, like, 
the city in real estate right now. It's an absolute mess. Everything de Blasio is doing right now is is great in terms of the employees, but it's um it's it's like it's like it's like Trump tariffs. It's nothing's thought off in terms of thought out in terms of transitions and right. how it's, it's like, going to happen. So like I just we want to pay people as much as we can and and more than what they you know. We have wonderful employees that have been with us for a lot of years, and I want to give them all the money. Um, that being said, when you raise minimum wage by, you know, however many, three, four dollars over the last few yeah, years, let, let and there's alone. nothing else to subsidize the business owners when all of your other fixed costs go up, rent goes up, all of our subscriptions go up. Um, if he does 10 days paid vacation for small restaurateurs, it's going to put restaurants out. Like, well, there's no this doubt is already about. putting restaurants out. And, yeah. you know, we always I mean, get, like, the Eater weeks. newsletter so, I mean, roundups, and you're seeing, you know, the weekly shutters, and it's it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because you're watching busy restaurants close down. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the most heartbreaking part is that you're watching small families that are maintaining a busy restaurant, which is hard enough, shut down. And that have been there for 40 years. I yeah. mean, this is, like, the end of so, an era. My advice is not to do it. Right. There's, there's the food world is a wide, wide, diverse world right now. And there's all sorts of really, really interesting things to do. And in some sectors of the food world, there's more money than ever by enormous amount. And so... Could you give an example? Well, I mean, the CPG world. So consumer package world, natural food world, you know, television, all, all those different things in terms of the food world. It doesn't mean you can't do a restaurant, but... You just have to be so, you have to do it so, so intelligently. You know, it's, you know, most people that go to, you know, after, um, you know, after I went to Naropa University, I went to culinary school, I actually went to two of them. And, um, and, and most people that go to culinary school, it's interesting. I'd say, like, uh, the second school I went to was Johnson Wales. I'd say 90% of the people that graduate with a culinary degree from Johnson Wales most likely either become hairdressers or something in sports or insurance agents. Because once you get out and you realize what it takes to actually do it and work in a kitchen, nobody wants to freaking do it. And it's the same way with restaurants. People have the dream of doing it, but they don't properly bet themselves on whether or not they actually are up for it because it's brutal. And the experience and, and information you really need and skill set you really need to do it properly, if you have the experience to actually do that and pull it off right, it means you're probably smart enough to not want to do it. <laughs> so it's it's a tough it's a tough game. But what you know? keeps you? Go- well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, if if you're if this is what you want to do, at least advice that I can give myself seven years ago or ten years ago, from Spin is is to get a mentor, is to um, learn through people that have gone through it, is to partner with somebody who's got that experience and possibly the funding under their belt. I'm finding that a, a lot of the small businesses comparable to ours that are still thriving are part of bigger networks. No. And a lot of them, you know, I think are learning that to depend on foot traffic to pay your bills mm-hmm. is just not feasible anymore. So everyone's, you know, going into different secondary sources of revenue and a lot of that's packaging, a lot of it's catering. Um, you know, we know a lot of really, really successful restaurants that have opened their space up during the day for rental office space. I mean, it's yep. it's changed. Um, yep. It's unrealistic to expect to succeed off of five hours of dinner service every night. Yeah, yeah. I know there's a new um, company called Kettle that is mm-hmm. renting out spaces. There's Kettle, cool. Spacious, mm-hmm. And it's good, but honestly, I think it's pretty... I think for the most part... I don't think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what, what you know, um, the first person to do that was, honestly, was um, was, was Blue. It was DBGB. DB, what is it called? DBGB? That closed? Yeah, that closed. And they, I remember, they had a, I think they even had a Times article about it, you know, and that didn't last long. And that was in a good location for that, too, on Bowery. That yeah, would have been a perfect space, location for yeah. that. And it was a big space and comfortable. But, you know, those are all, like, trying to collect... Those are all trying to collect such small amounts to to pay such big deficits. Yeah, you know, and and there's you know, listen, there's a lot of other reasons. This I could sit here and and talk to chefs for hours about you know, re making sure their numbers are right and figuring out how to find the freedom they need through you know more 
you know, discipline financial work. And even that has changed. Like even, even the numbers, the percentages changed. that, you know, when we opened seven years ago, our cost of goods has to be lower than than what it was then because I mean, labor is now. Yeah, you, you were taught traditionally to run a restaurant that your numbers for food need to be around, let's say, uh, 27 to 33 percent. That was your food cost. And that's to run a healthy business. And at that point, restaurants were expected to produce a profit of maybe somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. Right now, that number is down to the pennies. crazy thing and then you know and i'd say separately as if you know just to you know to be a voice to chefs and stuff starting out outside of all this stuff i would say and this is really anyone doing something creative when you when you're young and when you first open a restaurant the what you want to do is prove something to everybody and if you're an artist if you're a singer if you're making an album if you're a chef or whatever it is, um, that's what you want to do. And so you end up doing too much. You end up trying to do too much. And as you get older, you realize the wisdom is trying to really bite into something that's so simple. And and that's really the trick to doing a restaurant or doing something creative is really, really getting outside of the ego part of it um, and just being able to offer a really, really incredible experience to customers. Mm-hmm or your audience, if any sense. If you were to get a call tomorrow from some other, you know, the other side of the world saying, hey, we have this big opportunity, we have a big idea, we want you to come here, would you drop everything and go? Well, I think, you know, as Will mentioned, um, we do have legal obligations to stick it out here. Um, In an ideal world, that sounds great. <laughs> so maybe um, if you got a call in three years when your <laughs> yeah. lease is up. It's possible. I mean, I think we both, you know, like I said, we miss traveling. Um, yeah, but we are also, still committed to making this work. And, and because we're such a small family-run place, um, our operations team and our PR team and all that are the two of us. Um, we've got some a really strong team with us. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's us running, um, paying the bills and, and keeping the lights on. So, you know, in, a, in an ideal world, we have that in place and we can kind of jet off and do what we want. But as long well, as we Also, we still... have, like, you know, our families here. And our, yeah, and, we're, and, we're know, pretty I, rooted in New York. And if you told me, you know, when I was younger that I'd be moving to, you know, New York City, I would definitely tell you to go fuck off. I was, you know, living kind of just as a hippie in, in the mountains. And, and, and I... It was never really been a, a dream, but as you get older and your family's in one place, you kind of want to be close to them. And, and um, Our grandmother's 97 and mm-hmm. still living way out on the tip of the North Fork. Uh, we also have a, a half-brother who just turned 12 that we're really close to. Um, also living out on Long Island? Uh, he's up in Westchester. In West we we, we don't mean like half-brother like different parents. We mean like half-human. <laughs> <laughs> he's only uh, a few years away from legally being allowed to work in the kitchen with us. So. <laughs> Keep him close. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, um, you know, I think for sure what you can guarantee is that, um, you know, as we figure out how to loosen up the reins, you know, in the city, um, we'll definitely be traveling more and I'll be living a little bit more um, j- just not as planted necessarily. Mm-hmm. So whether that means traveling more out of you know, the state or just going back and forth more, whether it's in the North Fork or for me back in Colorado, um, whatever, whatever it is, um, we definitely feel like um, whether it's, you know, hopefully we get invited back to the show as writers or whatever it is as artists, um, you know, be able to use these skill sets to be more impactful and also more flexible in our time. I should also say that we are definitely both homebodies, though, and as much as he likes to talk about his nomadic dreams, um, he's he's pretty rooted in his home and, and his girlfriend and our us, and um, I think that's important to both of us. So, And I think that's part of Ducks. I think Ducks has become that for us. It's It's a home base for us, which is why we're still here. I want to get back to the woods. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) Build a home in the woods. Um, Before we finish up, I also remembered that I wanted to ask how you split your tasks in the restaurant between you two. 
Yeah. Um, so Will and I have very, very different skill sets. I think we're both really creative, which is where they cross over. Um, but at the restaurant, um, he really handles the culinary side of things. So he's developing the menu. Um, he's also a resident schmoozer. He's a, he loves to talk to people. Um, and I really handle operations and front of the house and paying bills and insurance and all the, that's super fun stuff. So what keeps you going despite the fact that the odds are pretty much against you? I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, for us, I mean, you know, we signed leases. We have, like, legal obligations to run restaurants, and that's the sad truth of it, but, um, but it's the truth. Um, we also, you know, even though we might have good days, we might have bad days, at the end of the day, we, we do love this place, and we do love the community that it's brought together here. You know, um, when we first were on Sideways, it was right after, I believe probably right after um, Hurricane Sandy, my yeah. guess, around that ballpark. And that's really when we first opened. And, you know, we, we had a joke for a long time that our bread and butter was kind of natural disasters. Um, <laughs> so we, we always we tend stayed to do, open. We both came from, you know, backpacking and things like that and kind of always having, you know, uh, a, a way to kind of get over a rehump. And... Um, and, you know, we stayed. We were one of the few places that stayed open during Sandy years ago, and that brought together a huge community very fast for us. It did. It really solidified us in this neighborhood, and I think people were really um, appreciative that we stayed open. And, yeah. and we met, really, I mean, we met a ton of people that week. Yeah. Um, and it was hard, and it got cold. Um, and, uh, but it, it was worth it for us. I mean, it was a really interesting beginning. Developing here has been a huge one. And for, and for me, I think for both of us, you know, in, in, and this is cheesy, but, you know, the, the general sense of hospitality, when you do have a great night or you do serve somebody, a group of people, and you just know whether you're in the front or in the back of the kitchen, that you just know what they ordered, you know what they got, you see their faces, and you know that they just had this, you know, one of the great food experiences kind of other, of at least for some time for them. And, and um and that's a good feeling, too, It is. Honestly. There's there's little that's more fulfilling than that. Um, and and it's, you know, we're a quirky restaurant. We serve some kind of quirky food, and, and it tends to attract people that are more open-minded, um, that are a little quirky themselves. So more often than not, you know, our customers are are people that we would want to connect to anyway. And it's uh, it becomes a really special experience when we have a night like that where everything falls into place and... And you just sort of, I, I find myself kind of standing in the corner of the room looking at a full dining room and a full bar and, and I could get emotional about it. It's a, it's a wonderful experience. And, you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind when I'm downstairs in the office paying bills and, and trying to make it all work because it is, it's uh Yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult yeah. to, you know, managing staff. You're, it's, you know, you're basically as a small business owner you're going around putting out fires every two seconds, right. and that's that becomes the majority of what you do. Um, so you kind of you you need those reliefs, you know. You need to those constant reminders of why it's so special and it's really difficult. Um, and and I know. think also as hard as this has been, and as much as this model that worked seven years ago maybe doesn't work quite as much now, um, it's given us the platform to work on some other really exciting things yeah. and um you know we have a book coming out in march and it's been a really long journey i think we started it almost three years ago can you tell me more about upcoming projects and aspirations maybe even things that haven't been planned out yet and do you are you definitely going to be walking away from the restaurant business and will you continue to work together well i think First and foremost, the book, because we are so excited and we're only about a month and a half away from it. it was, um, we, we both are, like, really, really, that's been a passion for us because yeah. she comes from an incredible illustration background. She did all the illustrations for it, let alone, you know, the majority of the editing for it. Um, and, and I originally came from a, a writing background before cooking. So given it was based on, you know, very beatnik style stream of consciousness writing, so it didn't exactly prepare me as a career writer. Which was really fun to, to edit. <laughs> but, 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 um, 
I, I didn't see the problem with putting made up words. In, but, but I, guess I had to do is. a document word um. search point for a word that he kept using over and over that didn't actually exist. They were good words. Um, um, but, but the book is called Salt Smoke Time, uh-huh. and we're working on it through William Morrow and Harper Collins. Uh, they've been really wonderful to work with. And it comes out March 12th. March 12th. It's available for pre order today. Yeah. But it's, um, but you know, so. We've definitely put a lot of our heart into that book, and and you know it's it's not um it's not a career choice, you know. Um, I think uh, most restaurant chefs and and when they get to, you know, this is around the point that people start kind of getting invited to the book party, and um, and 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 most of them just do it under their name or the restaurant, and you know the difference is that we had something. You know, we had formulated opinion that we really wanted to get off our chest, um, and we did that. You know, in terms of sustainability and and, and all these things, and and using it to actually help you financially. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's you know the the way we created the book was very different than a typical like concept book. It's definitely not your um, you know meals under twenty dollars and twenty minute style book. The idea of it is to use and understand these techniques and be able to bring them to your own house, whether it's making sauerkraut or learning how to cure something or smoke something in your home oven, uh, just as much as if you're off in the mountains living off the grid somewhere, and figuring out how to do those things, not just because they taste amazing and they do, but because we can actually teach you to use those things to run a better home kitchen and to run a more inexpensive home kitchen. And we like to joke with people that um, when they ask us what type of food do we cook, we tell them we cook a, a seasonal cooking, or <laughs> farm to table, which is, at least in New York City, such a passe thing to say at this point and kind of a joke. But that is what we're doing. But what we're, we're bringing to it is kind of this second layer of what farm to table actually is. So the idea that you're going to the farmer's market, not to find something to cook tonight, but you're going to the farmer's market to find something that's going to taste really, really good with this, you know, sauerkraut or this sausage or this whatever that you cooked, you know, made three months ago and is perfect right now. And it's developing this second layer to seasonal cooking and being able to be self-reliant as, as human beings that not only, again, tastes great, but actually could become a lot cheaper for your wallet, too. And I think we all kind of need that these days, no matter what our situation and, and, and I think the book also just it speaks beautifully to who we are and what our concept is, especially at Ducks, because it's got, you know, it's got the meat in there. Um, there is the recipe for the goat neck. It also has the recipes for a lot of our smoked vegetables that we're doing. So it really, it ranges from, you know, there are chapters on how to dress a deer, and then there are chapters on how to... <laughs> dress a melon. <laughs> dress a melon, right. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's not vegan. It's not purely... For meat eaters, mm-hmm. um, it really we, speaks to more what he's saying. It speaks to the techniques behind them. And we're giving people them. tools. Yeah. And I hate to like pull up like the cheesy like uh, you know give a man a fishing pole nonsense, <laughs> but it really is. It's it's the idea. The way we actually create it is not when you read it. There's a lot of our own writing and stuff in it, um, but we also spend the first part of the book really just teaching people techniques, how to ferment something in a way that's accessible and easy, how to smoke something both the same way, how to age something, you know, how to dry something, all these just very, very basic, basic techniques of how to create a pantry in your own house, whether you're in a dorm or, again, in a mansion, and and then how to apply them to whether it's seafood or meat or vegetables or herbs or berries, and even within that, we actually even have a foraging section that Julie did all the illustrations for that teaches you, um, you know, how to start learning how to identify safe mushrooms and and wild edibles to eat and how to do that, you know, again, whether you're in the city, I mean, the amount of mornings I wake up early and find myself in, you know, Pelham Park near City Island or somewhere like that foraging, or again, if you're really out in the bush somewhere. And, and then lastly, putting those together into actual recipes, which for us are really more recommendations. It's about mm-hmm. just teaching people these skill sets again as humans mm-hmm. and how to integrate into even a modern lifestyle. Um, so I want to jump back for a second to your family heritage in the restaurant business, food business. Um, has that 
how has that affected you? And also, um, can you tell me about how your family has worked together more recently? I think you had asked us a few questions back, what, why are we still doing this and what keeps us going? And I think a lot of it is because it, it is in our blood and we feel connected to it, especially food in New York um, from both sides of our family. Um, you know, on our dad's side, our great-grandparents were Harry and Ida, which is the namesake of our other restaurant. Um, and my, our dad grew up in the deli. He grew up eating beef tongue and then sort of transformed his life into uh, eating wasa bread and almonds. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he always used to joke when we first opened, we were... We had a lot more meat on the menu, and a lot of it was pretty unhealthy. Um, and he used to joke that maybe we could make it a, a full family business, and we could just hand out his business card as a cardiologist with the uh, with the check and maybe prescription of Lipitor. But I mean, this is like the typical like uh, romantic New York Lower East Side story where everybody's families worked like hell to get out of here, and then everyone's grandchildren moved back Brought to pay back. twenty right. times the rent into the same stupid thing. And we're so, not alone. I mean, you know, the deal. grandkids at Russ and Daughters are doing it. And Everybody. Jake Dell at Katz. Is, and mm-hmm. it's uh, the, the old school delicatessen has gone through some changes and most have closed. And I, I think we were an exciting part of the resurgence. Mm-hmm. And um, can you guys just describe sort of in detail a couple of the dishes that are in the book or in the restaurant? One of my favorite uh, dishes that I, I probably eat like three times a week um, that's both in the book and that we serve here are the uh, smoked mussels. So we have this really beautiful way of lightly smoking these very plump, delicious mussels. He then preserves them in either a thyme oil or we've done a, a maple chili oil. And then we actually serve it room temperature with um, slices of bread and our have smoked cream. And it's all very... It's just, I love it for the taste, obviously. I eat it a lot. But I think what I love most about this dish is that each element of it just perfectly exemplifies what he's trying to portray in the book, which is, you know, there are all these ingredients that you can make and keep in your pantry, and they all involved curing and preserving, and um, and then they get assembled into this really beautiful dish that's... Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, I mean, still on our menu, I mean, we have from our house-made butters to... You know, sixty-hour fermented sourdoughs to I mean, incredible, incredible cheese selections right now, and we really wanted to just like refocus the menu the past six months, and really just my goal was that I don't care anymore if things go together or what they do. I just want to make every single thing on the menu absolutely delicious. Like like when you bite into it, it's like oh my freaking god! So we have some homemade pastas right now. With lots of, you know, just all sorts of different things that are just unbelievably delicious. And I think creating and a cohesive was... menu under one specific genre has never really limited us. I mean, people have always asked, what type of food is this? And there's never really been a straight answer to yeah. it. And we I think because won, of that, no. it's, yeah, it's just sort of I mean, people limitless. People have labeled us, you know, everything from, you know, French to Cajun to Vietnamese to modern, I don't know. Smokehouse, like, Barbecue. barbecue. But we don't know what we are, and we never want to, you know, and that's the truth. And that's the beauty of it. And, you know, again, I hate to bring it back to these village, but this is still the place to do that somewhat. Where do you source your ingredients from? All over. I mean, we do a large mixture. A lot of the stuff we do is based on raw ingredients, I mean, so because we, we do a lot of prep work and smoking. Um, most of the, you know, meat, we've really been working hard to kind of reduce the amount of meat we have. And every year we're kind of working to get it from more and more specialty farms the best we can. Most of the veggies we're getting through uh, producers that oftentimes you can find right in the market and stuff, but a lot, most are within the surrounding area. And, you know, it's, um, it's tough. We're, we're constantly, like I said, trying to work on figuring out what the next thing is for a long time. You know, in the back of Harry Nettis for a while, we were just going to the market uh, just to pick up um, what people were throwing out, whether it's trash bags full of radish tops or whatever it was. And um, and we had a good deal going where we would prepare it, can it, preserve it, do whatever we could, give a portion of it back to the farmer, and that was our payment for it so that they could extend their shelf life of stuff. 
and then the we would keep uh, the rest of it for ourselves. And you know that's a pretty time-consuming model, so it's difficult to do that these days. But that's the model that you know mm-hmm. we strive for is uh, ideas like that. Um, in general, I mean, and, and and the book for sure. But in general, we've been able to kind of find a voice in the food world. Absolutely. And that's been huge. I mean, we've we've done talks, you know, here and really throughout the world now. And and honestly, all these kind of hardships and adversity, they've kind of forced us into figuring out um, from a food world too, how do you make this work? You know, mm-hmm. like what Julie was saying with the book we have coming out, you know, our whole, and after, you know, telling you my history a little bit with permaculture and, and older heritage techniques and stuff like that, you know, we originally became famous here for selling a smoked goat neck. You know, we were doing pretty good and we were throwing parties and having fun. And um, next thing you know, we got a call from uh, like a Guy Fiore's <laughs> office saying that the production crew saying that they uh, wanted to film us uh, with a, a goat neck because a bunch of other big chefs in the city had recommended us. And we actually, when that first happened, I remember I'd gone outside to Julie and my our partner, my other co-chef, um, David Milburn, um, and I went outside to go have a smoke and tell them what it was. And uh, and my head. It was me telling them, getting a laugh at telling them, hey, what's the best way for me to tell Guy Fiore to go fuck off? And and they looked at me like, what are you, out of your mind? You can't do that. Because for me, and, and on my like high throne as like a, a chef, my thought process was, that's the last thing I want to do is go on like some Sesame Street kid, you know, cooking show. And... And end up being, the truth is, end up being one of the best things for us we could ever imagine. It pretty much tripled our business for about a year and a half afterwards. Wow. Yeah. And then it re-airs like every six months. Yeah. So we get a boost from that. And and what, and also the other thing that really kind of, you know, shattered you know my illusion about that stuff was that, um, you know, we were, we did the show, but and we did a lot of shows since then, but doing something, <laughs> doing something cool doing something um, that was interesting, we thought, in the food world. And it was all based on, you know, this ideas that we've developed, um, which is based around studying, you know, all these older food traditions and homesteading, which is taking inexpensive cuts of food or vegetables and figuring out how to apply these ideas of food preservation or, you know, really kind of alchemy um, to make them more valuable. Mm-hmm. And and what we found was that, that that is what we needed because we had such a small kitchen here and we were on such a budget. So we needed, we wanted to still work with decent farms and people, but we couldn't afford the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So we took the garbage. And luckily it was really tasty garbage. <laughs> and we figured out ways of making it worth more mm-hmm. by you know fermenting it or smoking it mm-hmm. or preserving it. And, and that created our system. Mm-hmm. So even when we were at our busiest and we were pulling these nights that were, you know, maybe 150 people of a 30-something seat restaurant, you know, which is nuts, um, you know, the food was taking two seconds. And because it was either still alive and wiggling around fresh or it was had been cured or smoked for, you know, days, weeks, maybe years. Um, and, and that was... The process was using these old techniques and looking into the past to figure out more sustainable solutions and, and, and really more sustainable financial solutions to being able to run a business as it gets more and more difficult towards the future. And then the challenge is also to continue to evolve that and continue to get creative with those ingredients because thankfully for us, you know, we had this goat neck that was really cheap in the beginning because nobody was buying it. And then it got some notoriety and the prices went up. So and that's, things and like that's that the story, figures, and, that's and the it's story just of the world. continuing to stay creative and, and, and innovative. And every great food in the world from every culture has a similar story to that. And and that's really, you know, the brand butter for us now is trying to figure that stuff out. Um, you know, that's why we really wrote the book was to be able to voice that and to be able to say, hey, look, we know that, you know, times are tough, whether you're a family, whether you're a restaurant, whether you're a home chef, whatever it is, but this is a way that we can make things actually easier. And mm-hmm. the, the, the big trick is 
is that these are ideas that have already been written for us. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the beauty for us. And and so we look, you know, towards our past and towards nature to figure out those things. I mean, this year, you know, we started applying these same ideas to, um, you know, vegetables. And you know, last year we, we uh, came in a close second in a... Uh, in a meat charcuterie contest, uh, convincing a whole lot of people smarter than me that a uh, fermented, aged, and smoked rainbow radish was a uh, piece of uh, beef brajole wow. that was aged, so almost like a prosciutto. Um, and we keep on doing these types of things where we then launched a smoked watermelon ham in here that, that had over 100 million views worldwide. And we still get calls from com- production companies in Japan and Germany and all over that want to fly in to film it to this day. Wow. And, it's, um, and we keep on doing that. We're about to release a product line of uh, uh, hot dogs and sausages and sliced deli meats all based off of fermented and smoked and aged vegetables. So, you know, for us, it's, um, the answer is to constantly push and to constantly push with respect to studying and learning these older traditions and ideas and that's been that's the story for us it also might look like you know this is this is the end of an era and things are changing rapidly um, but at a certain point, the bubble might burst, and small businesses will hopefully reemerge. It'll just be—it'll just, just look different. Someone. Yeah, you, you know, there's always when it comes to these financial skills, there's always a level of discovery, right? That's what they talk about in real estate. So when you looked at like um, Lower East Side, when everything all of a sudden went from you know four thousand dollars a month or three thousand dollars a month to twenty thousand dollars a month. <laughs> And then now, you when know, banks 80% and subway of those, chains can't hack it. I mean, well, now eighty percent of those businesses in the Lower East Side are closed. And but the difference is, the problem is, is that the level of discovery, the first jump was, you know, three thousand to eighteen or twenty thousand, and the level of discovery brought it down to maybe sixteen thousand. So it's still so high, even though they say it's right now a buyer's market. Right now, it's not. Because what that's it's relative to was so unsustainable that it's it's BS. And so, where do you, know, you we're see... seeing the death of bodegas for years right yeah. now. We're seeing those stats of how many bodegas have gone yeah. down. I mean, it's, it's all going to be a bunch of, you know... Like you know, CVS's. Yeah, it's it's going to yeah. be more than Even those are going to go down. It's all going to be Amazon, you know, mm. cashierless, um, you know, vending, giant walk-in vending machines. And that's it, you know? So... Where do you see you guys going in the next few years considering all of that what's what's the plan I think you know I think the dream is to uh to make it to our 10-year lease uh which we're not far from but um the reality is that we need to make money um another way and uh I think we care so so deeply about this place I mean the two of us are always in here on our hands and knees and um really working our tails off but um we're also older than when we started um, and that has made a big difference at least for me personally I feel like you know working 80 hour weeks is not quite as gratifying as it was before and like Will said it's I have less to prove now um, which is I think what drove us maybe in the beginning but I think we're on to a lot of really really exciting yeah. things and, and if we can focus our energy on those and and even more so you know out of us personally, all these projects are are bigger than us. It's it's for the greater good, and and while we stand behind a lot of our meat dishes, if we can reduce meat consumption by even a little bit, um, that's important. And yeah, I mean, we've been working really diligently outside of all this the past few years on um, just purely towards sustainability yep. and using these models and lessons that we've learned in running such a small kitchen here, um, and trying to utilize them towards more impactful, large-scale ways. So the past few years, we predominantly spent, you know, uh, time in our, our lab in the back of Arianette is working on um, adding value to sustainably farmed seaweed and working on, you know, uh, creating more seaweed farmers. 
similarly with mushrooms. And right now we're doing it with, with vegetables and trying to use them with the book coming out, you know, explaining a lot of those ideas and techniques and philosophy behind them. You know, I think if we can use this, and like Julie said, originally as a platform, and it's opened a ton of doors for us and for our voice, and if and to do things that are more impactful on a large-scale level mm-hmm. has been pretty gratifying to us. And a lot of our family is also out on uh, the North Fork, which is where a lot of our roots lie. So, like I said, out in Orient, and, and we have a place uh, um, in Tuck and out there, and... You know, I think we both consider ourselves doing something, A, a lot more impactful in the world um, with writing and recipes and product development um, and also probably spending a lot more time out there. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, a lot more where we have such a con- great connection to a lot of the farmers and the water out there. I should also say that um, I think both of us had a, a bit of a wake-up call as far as the ever-changing model and what we want for ourselves personally. Um, so we have Duck's Eatery that we opened seven years ago. We have Harry and Ida's Meat Supply Co. down the street that's been about four, four and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few years ago, we also opened an offshoot of that called Harry and Ida's Luncheonette. Um, and that was sort of Fidei Tribeca, um, supposed to be sort of a fast, casual version of the deli. Um, and it lasted just under a year. Um, we closed it over the summer, and I think it was really hard. It was really educational for both of us. We had both opened restaurants but never really closed one in that way. Um, but what we were doing down there was much more in line with what we want to do moving forward, and I think it gave Will a platform to really exercise his creativity, and he was doing um, – we did, like, classic Kasha Varnishka's but instead of egg noodles, we, you know, he turned turnips into completely vegetable-based noodles, flat noodles. Flat noodles. Yeah. Um, so I think there were a lot of um, things like that that we learned a lot from. Um, but in that setting, you know, we just learned that it, it doesn't quite work or it didn't for us. What happened? I think we just, you know, like most of our restaurants, we opened undercapitalized um, and understaffed and thought that we could split ourselves in three. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, this idea, and this hasn't been uncommon, and, um, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of our business models, you know, for me, have been looking into what the trends are, what other people are doing, and what seems to be pushing forward. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of what's gone on in the past few years is you've seen a lot of chefs move towards a more of a fast, casual type yeah. of concept. And, you know, we have this, you know, the past few years, this giant, you know, um, new fast food revolution with, you know, all the salad places, all the dig-ins, the build-it, whatever's. And, um, and, and those are good, and they've received certainly a lot of funding and, and accolades, but um, there's also been a big bubble to those as well. And, um, you know, we're, we're actually, I, I, I think it's kind of an illusion, and a lot of the people that I know that see, that, that really know the numbers there, mm-hmm. You know they're they're tightening their margins that were already slim even lower than they were and going on volume, and top line volume numbers are really good for I'll say for getting uh, larger VC investments, but for actual real true sustainable growth, even in New York City they're not impenetrable. They're 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 still a brick and mortar and real, and and I think we're. A lot of people are finding that out the hard way right now. Um, for what we did downtown, it's difficult. You know, we've we've based a lot of our name off of cooking meats and things like that. I mean, especially in, in the spin days, you know, being associated to, you know, celebrities like Susan Sarandon, we, we were getting handwritten letters from PETA once a month for a good amount of time. You know, and it's ironic now with the watermelon that we're getting, you know, hate mail from carnivores. But... Um, but that's the way the world works. It's very black and white. And, um, you know, for us, we see it a little bit differently where a lot of our angle moving into the plant-based world has been because we had the experience and lessons learned in curing and smoking and fermenting, you know, non-plant-based foods. And I think for a lot of people, that's actually given us a little more credibility is that Mm -hmm. we've got that background. We know how to smoke meat. I mean... Will was down the brisket king of New York at one point. Like, he makes he makes good meat. Um, so I, I think it's 
to the people that are aware, I think it gives us a little more credibility. It's, it's an interesting transition. You know, we're, yeah. we're, um, you know, we're on thin ice and we're going into new terrain. Yeah. And we've done that from the get-go and now we're really, really doing it. And, um, you know, it's weird and it's different and it's who we are. But, you know, what, what I always tell people is that if you can't be a little weird in a old converted stable house in the East Village, village then, you know, where the fuck can you? So. Is there anything else you guys would like to share with me that you don't feel like we've talked about yet? Covered a lot of ground. We have. It's a lot of ground. That was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ellie Cody, and this has been an interview by Manhattan Sideways. If you'd like to learn more about this particular business or to discover and read about thousands of other fascinating small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, please visit our website, sideways.nyc, and of course, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, at NYSideways.